Good to see you guys. Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of Galatians is where we're at today. So why don't you open up there. Galatians chapter 1. If you guys are new here, I want to welcome you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors. Um, we have been, uh, we just started the book of Galatians last Sunday. We're going to be in this book for a good four or five months, so somewhere around there. And uh, what we're going to be looking at here today, what I want to do this morning is I want to basically jump right in, uh, reading the first few verses of Galatians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start about verse 6, go down about verse 10. Uh, then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this great chapter and uh, see what God has to speak to us today. So let's read, pray, and then we'll jump in. Verse 6 says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and that you're turning, into a, turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who would trouble you and who want to distort the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would help us, help us understand what you're wanting to communicate to us. Let your word uh, be clearly communicated, clearly spoken, clearly articulated. And God, I pray that any distractions, anything that would just keep our minds from engaging you and from understanding what the gospel is, I pray that those things would go out the door and that we would just grasp the importance of this, the significance of what Paul is trying to convey. So we ask for your help. As we look at this text, but even more importantly than anything else, God, we ask that this would not just simply be knowledge, that this would not just simply be something that we learn and we walk away having greater knowledge, greater insight, greater um, theological understanding, but God, that our hearts would be affected by it, that our love for you would be provoked, that our curiosity in pursuing you, that we want to press in to you deeper, God, that that would be what moves us and motivates us and transforms us. It changes us. So we ask for your help. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to um, begin this morning by giving a little bit of a uh, background uh, to kind of catch us up to speed. Because I think for a lot of us, we can hear this great book called the book of Galatians and try to understand what it means and try to um, read it from a face value and try to get up to track or get up to speed with the argument that Paul's trying to convey but what I think is really important is for us to understand a little bit of the cultural context and what was actually happening in the first century church because there is something really profound that's going on that Paul's really frustrated about. Um, he starts the letter off. He's very upset. I mean, we just read that in verse 6. Paul starts off his letter. He's like, look, I'm really, really freaked out, really astonished as to what's happening. I mean, it's really strong language. Most of us, we don't start our emails that way. We don't send letters like that and start off immediately. The first header, we're like, I'm frustrated with you. That's kind of what Paul's doing. And he's really, really troubled, deeply concerned as to what's happening in the church there in Galatia, or the churches there in Galatia. And so I want to give you guys a real brief uh, cultural context that I think might help us. In order to really try to understand this, we actually got to go back several hundred years before Jesus even lived. And it was during the time of what was uh, traditionally called the Babylonian exile. What happened was in Israel, 
uh, the Jews were taken off into Babylonian captivity, which means that there was this big, massive nation called the Babylonians. They swept down, they picked up the Jewish nation, the majority of them, and it swiped them off all the way into the land of the region of Babylon. And all these people that were uh, Jews by culture were now finding themselves in a brand new culture, under a brand new king, uh, surrounded by pagans, surrounded by people that they didn't understand, speaking a different language they couldn't understand, uh, with cultures and customs that they didn't understand. And uh, the very first thing that typically people like that would do is they would try to uh, sort of recolonize, to sort of uh, regather themselves into clusters of familiarity. I mean, they would find themselves gathering in neighborhoods whereby they can be sort of unique again, be culturally unique. And, you know, I mean, it'd be kind of like if, um, you know, it's not going to happen, but imagine if Canada swept down from Washington, down through Portland, Oregon, all the way down to America, down to uh, Central California. They came into San Luis Obispo. They took us away. We find ourselves being taken all the way back to, I don't know, let's say Saskatchewan. And we find ourselves in an entirely different land. People are radically different. Everybody's got mullets. They say, hey, it's the worst place you can imagine. Everybody thinks hockey's a sport. Um, They're very deeply deceived. It's just a horrible place. You find yourself radically in a different culture. They speak a different language. They eat different food. They worship different gods. It's just a radically different place. And you would immediately try to find other people that are from the Central Coast to kind of hang out with them, spend time with them, talk to them, kind of get a little bit of a slice of home. That's what the Jews did when they were there in Babylon. And one of the very most important things that had happened was the Jews basically realized um, we don't want to begin to worship false gods. Uh, that's the whole story of Daniel. Remember Daniel, obviously? These young kids are just like, we're not going to worship false idols, so we'll die. If that means we have to worship false idols, we'd rather die. And uh, that tradition continued. And so what had happened in Babylon with the Jews, they didn't have a temple anymore. So they were not able to sacrifice to Yahweh, to their God. And so what they did is they kind of made makeshift temples. They called them synagogues. And these were sort of like miniature temples where they would go. And rather than offering sacrifices of animals, they would actually offer sacrifices of praise. They would worship God. They would sing to God. They would let the scriptures be opened up. They would read the um, the Old Testament Torah, which would have been the first five books of Moses at that particular time, maybe with a collection of a few other books. But at that particular time, they would just gather, they would engage the scripture and the leaders of those little groups of, called synagogues, these little gathering of Jews. Uh, they called themselves Pharisees. They were the righteous ones. That's what Pharisee means, righteous ones. And so they would gather and they let the Pharisees communicate and teach uh, the word of God to them. Another thing that happened during that period of time, they're in Babylonian captivity. Um, they were gathering together collections of um, teachings that were centered around what was called the oral tradition, um, meaning the Jews not only had the written law, which would have been the first five books of Moses, but they also had uh, the oral tradition, which, which was basically like how to do certain things. In other words, God says, keep the Sabbath. So the oral tradition sort of filled in the blanks with helping you to understand how to keep the Sabbath. Does that make sense? And what was happening during that period of time, they had what was called the... Um, the Talmud that was being gathered together it was called the, uh, or the, the codification. They were bringing together these uh, uh, spoken concepts, bringing together into what was called the Talmud. And then, um, and they would teach these things. They would convey and communicate these things in these synagogues. And this happened for the next couple hundred years um, in, the Bab- in the Babylonian captivity. And when the Jews came back from the Babylonian captivity, they actually carried on the same traditions of the Pharisaic uh, leaders kind of leading the host of the people of Israel on down to the day when Jesus came into the earth. And so 
most of us, we kind of pick up the story uh, when we read the Gospels and we read about the uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees in particular, and we think they're the bad guys, right? They're the bad guys. They're the ones with the black hats. Jesus and the disciples had the white hats. And there's this constant duel, constant fighting going on between the black hats and the white hats. And in reality, uh, the Pharisees were actually, in a lot of ways, very well-respected people. They were uh, highly honored, and they knew their Bibles very well. Uh, but the problem was, was that the Pharisees, in a lot of ways, began to idolize their tradition. They fell in love with their traditions. They fell in love with sort of the codification of their traditions uh, that formed what was typically called the Talmud. And so in Jesus' day, Jesus rebukes them sternly several times. He's like, you guys teach as the commandments of God your traditions. So that was really the big issue. So what was going on was these guys were very much so into their cultural distinctiveness. Their cultural, dis- uh, their cultural identification is really, in other words, what they began to idolize. In fact, so much so that they made no room for Jesus. So give you an example. Here they are, kind of on the Temple Mount. They're looking at Jesus and his disciples, and they're basically saying, we love our temple because our temple is where we go to sacrifice. It's where we go to have our sins forgiven. Jesus is like, you don't need that anymore. I'm here. I'm here. Uh, you go to me. I'll take care of your sins. They're like, well, the temple is what gets us to God. Jesus is like, you don't need the temple. I'm here to get you to God. They're like, uh, well, we need to be reconciled with each other, reconciled with God. Jesus is like, well, I'm, I'm here. The temple was a shadow. You guys are falling down, hugging a shadow. Don't love a shadow. Love me. I've come, and I'm the fulfillment of it all. And so what was basically going on in this particular setting where the Jews were holding on to their traditions and their religiosity, and what was taking place, their cultural identity became sort of idolized. It was really what they were looking to as what was making them distinct rather than looking to God. And then when Jesus came, some of them actually turned to Christ. Some of them loved Jesus. Some of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, actually turned to Jesus. Examples of those would be like Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea was also believed to be some sort of Pharisee or a leader. These guys were religious leaders in the early church or in the first century uh, that were very staunch uh, religious leaders. They were very culturally Jewish, and yet they also came to faith in Christ, and they remained, in a lot of ways, culturally Jewish, meaning they didn't change their clothing. They stayed Jewish. They kept keeping the same traditions they would. In fact, if you were to go to early first century uh, churches in Jerusalem, they wouldn't look like this at all, at all. Women would be on this side or whatever, you know, guys on that side. It's kind of how they would worship. And there, there would still be a lot of the traditional elements that were there. They would still dress like Jews. They would still eat kosher. They wouldn't be going out and having like pig sandwich at Firestone. Just wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. Um, they, they would not be mixing, you know, dairy products with uh, other products that were sort of unkosher. They wouldn't do that type of stuff. It was very culturally Jewish. Okay, fast forward a few, you know, 15, 20 years or so, God grabs a hold of this young Jew, young Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus. We looked at him last week. He gets saved. He meets Jesus. One of the things that God calls Paul to do is he says, I want you to go plant churches amongst non-Jews. Paul's like, you mean pagan non-Jews? God's like the paganist of the pagan non-Jews. Like the ones that worship at temples, Jews, or non-Jews? God's like, yes, the ones that have filthy mouth, non-Jews. The ones that dress in horrible clothing, non-Jews. The ones that their women wear like barely nothing, non-Jews. The ones that worship Zeus, non-Jews. God's like, those are the non-Jews I want you to go to. And then that was radically, 
in a lot of ways, I'm sure, difficult for Paul at first. Because Pharisees, especially as being the most elite of all the religious leaders, felt to have any interaction with anybody outside of their own cultural setting was really sort of um, going to make God, at, make God may, angry, make God upset. It would sort of defile you. It's not the way that God wants to intermingle with you. I mean, this is one of the reasons why, by the way, when Jesus goes, hangs out, and he's like having dinner with a, 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 a prostitute, that everybody's freaking out. They're like, how can he be a rabbi? How can he be a teacher? Because everybody knows, right? Everybody knows rabbis, good teachers, don't sit down with prostitutes. You just don't have dinner with a, you know, an impure woman. And that's basically one of the greatest offenses that a lot of these people felt towards Jesus because of that. They did not have sort of a cultural grid to put Jesus. And so here's Paul being called now to go out to these Gentiles that are culturally non-Jewish, culturally in a lot of ways very offensive to Jews. Is this making sense so far? And so what was going on is out in this area, as Paul would share the gospel with these guys, they would come to know Christ, they'd come to know freedom. Their hearts were filled with joy. I mean, they were stoked to meet Jesus. Basically, Paul would come to them and he'd tell them, look, God's accepted you in Jesus. They're like, do we got to change the way that we look? Nope. Do we got to put our hat straight? Nope. Do we got to change from wearing baggy pants to get like straight, nice, tight jeans? Nope. Do we have to wear a suit and tie to go to church? Nope. Do we have to change wearing dickies to wear dockers? Nope. Do we have to wear a nice pressed shirt to go to church and a tie? Nope. God accepts you who you are. Do I have to wear penny loafers? Nope. Can I wear Converse? Yeah. God loves you. It doesn't matter. God doesn't have a preference in terms of style and dress. God doesn't prefer one type of dress code over another dress code. God accepts you for who you are. That was really good news. Because they lived in this culture that said, "Mm -mm, God doesn't accept you like that. The, the way that God accepts you is you look like us, you act like us, you dress like us, you take upon yourself these cultural nuances like us. Then God, then you and God can start having dialogue. Until then, no, nothing. So the point that Paul was interfacing with, they're having difficulty with these guys, was after bringing the gospel to these groups of people, these churches there in Galatia, he left. Kind of got kicked out of the area, actually. And... Um, what happened were these Judaizers, actually, they came in to the church. These were people from Jerusalem. They were probably converted Pharisees, converted uh, Jews, cultural Jews. And these guys did not make a distinction between cultural Judaism in relationship with God. Let me give you an example. Take a look at the next slide. I took these from Google. All right, these are, these are the modern-day Orthodox Jews, a gal, and a guy. And what, what I want you to see, and I'll tell you, explain that big thing in the middle in a second here. Um, most Orthodox Jews kind of look something similar to that. I mean, they change. Actually, if you look online, you'll see a lot of them have different hats. If you've ever been to Israel, I've been there several times, notice a lot of Jews wear different hats. The reason why? The hat indicates what rabbi you're under, who you're listening to, who you're following, who your rabbi is, who your teacher is you'll wear the same hat that he's got. So they'll have different hats like that. They'll have different band around it, red one, green, blue, all sorts of different hats. Guys from Russia have these big, fat, you know, like, you know, I don't know, mink, or I don't know what they are, but some sort of big fur hat. And, and it all indicates, and there's sort of bickering and backbiting go, oftentimes goes amongst them. They're like, our rabbi is better than your rabbi, and, and we'll prove it because we've got a bigger hat. Because God likes our bigger hat than your small hat. It's got a red band on it. Don't you know that God likes, and there's that sort of the mentality that goes on. 
and then um, dressing. Now, obviously, this is not how I don't think they dress first century, but let me give you an example. Let's say, for example, um, you know, I say I planted this church here 16 and a half years ago in my living room. God's blessed it. It's grown. I go away for like a, a, a month. Let's say I go away, a sabbatical or trip, whatever, go to Costa Rica, and it's wonderful. I get to surf all the time. But while I'm gone, while I'm gone, someone comes in. Let's just say this, this is the guy. Let's say he's a Christian. This is your pastor for the next month. And he comes in, and there's, is there anything wrong with dressing like that? Nothing. Nothing at all. Because look how some of you guys dress. It's all cool. I mean, some of you dudes wear like chick jeans. That's cool. I, I probably won't, but I mean, the reality is it's all right. It's okay. I mean, there's no big deal. Uh, you know, but here's where the problem gets sticky and gets troublesome, is when someone comes in, they're like, look, God has a preference by which he likes you better. So let's say this guy comes into the church, and he's your pastor for the next four weeks, and he basically says, look, if you really want to walk and follow Jesus, you know, I noticed, you know, Pastor Brian's done a good job, and a lot of things are great, things are happening, all you guys come to know Jesus, but, but problem is, is look at the way a lot of you girls are dressed. You show too much skin. You shouldn't show too much skin. So I, I want you to dress like my wife right here. All right? I want you to wear something that goes all the way up to the collar, nice, wears a nice, big, humongous flower, because this is what God likes. God, God likes it when you dress in modesty, like this. In other words, they define modesty like this. This is modesty. This is how God wants you to dress, because God actually likes it when you dress like this better than the way you dress right now. Forever 21, he does not like. Uh, Modestapparel.com, he loves. God loves that type of dress, all right? Uh, Quaker wear, he loves that, all right? And it's kind of funny, I know, it's kind of funny, but let's say the guy goes one step further. He's like, okay, all right, week one, we talk about dress. Jesus loves you. Yes, he died for you on the cross. Everything's great. God did everything to make a way for you. But, you know, at the same time, you guys got to make sure you clean up your dress. So, you know, dudes, you wear lavender shirts, repent. Stop wearing female colors and start wearing shirts like me. You, you guys, you know, that, that wear your hat a little bit cockeyed, you look like a thug. Stop dressing like that because God doesn't like thug. He does not like thug wear. He likes this type of wear. And so he starts kind of combing through saying, if, if you really want to be right with God, I, I'll show you where to get the proper clothing because this is the way culturally we want to help shape and transform the way that this church operates. And then he finally works everything up into this final thing where he's just like, look, the main thing is have you guys been circumcised? Have you guys, have you men, have you all been circumcised? You're like, circum what? I don't even know. All I know is Jesus. Because that's all that Pastor Brian told me is Jesus. All of a sudden the guy's like, circum he never told you about circumcision? What a bad pastor. He should never come back. And, and then he starts kind of, he, then he whips out this thing. <laughs> He's like, I'm glad you asked what circumcision is. See this? Is all, uh, uh, anybody wants to give him a shot? Right? Any takers? Okay, this is what they would do. These guys would come into the church that Paul, the churches that Paul planted, and they're like, look, culturally, you need to be like us. You need to be like us. Because this is what God prefers. God prefers circumcision over uncircumcision. God prefers, and honestly, all these guys had, guys had verses to back it. Some of you are like, ah, I don't have verses. They do have verses. That's the thing. They had verses. They would go back to the Old Testament and be like, you know, look, according to the covenant of Abraham, they had to circumcise themselves. And that's what they were doing. They were saying the way into God's relationship is you've got to get through Judaism, which means cultural Judaism, which means you've got to dress like us, you've got to eat kosher like us, you've got to get circumcised like us. And all these Gentile people that, 
I mean, imagine. What would you do if you came to this church, this guy came to preach, told you you got to change the way that you dress, told you you had to get circumcised. Where would you go to church next week? Here? Probably not. And if you did come back here, you'd be very confused. And if you did go through with this, you know what you'd end up doing? You'd gather all your little buddies that left, that AWOL, and you'd gather them together and be like, look, you're, you're walking in sin. The reason why you're walking in sin is because you didn't get circumcised. You bailed out before we passed out the shirts. You bailed out before your girlfriend got dressed. What type of Christians are you? You guys are loser Christians. See what happens? You get arrogance. Notice what's missing here? Jesus. He's nowhere in there. All you have is a bunch of cultural distinctiveness that's basically saying, here's how to define what a Christian is. That's what Paul's dealing with. That's what Paul's writing to. I want to give you guys three quick examples in every single church, in every different type of Bible study, oftentimes around. You've got these three different types of people everywhere. Whether you're in crusade, they're there. If you're in PCF, you're there. If you lead a community group, they will be there. They will come. These three different types of people. Take a look at the next slide. Uh, you've got people that are positives, People that are positives, people that are negatives, people that are neutrals. I hear a pastor describe it this way. I think it's a great way to identify it. I want to tell you what he says. The first thing he talks about are positives. These are people that do gospel things with gospel ways, gospel intentions, for gospel reasons. They work for the health of the church. Uh, They want to be a blessing because ultimately, at the end of the day, they want the gospel to win. They love Jesus. They want to see freedom. They want to see the gospel uh, win. They will they'll do anything they can to fight for the benefit of the Gospels. These people are a minority. The reason for that is, is because these people are regularly having to deal with the negatives. And what ends up happening is that if you are a positive and you're trying to fight for the Gospel, bring the Gospel in, you will have to deal with the negatives. And if you deal with the negatives in a negative way, then you become a negative. If you deal with the negatives in a way that's legalistic, you become a negative. Okay? So these people are always in danger of being corrupted by the negatives, but they exist. Um, there are those who are negatives. These people do ungospel things in ungospel ways for ungospel reasons. They bring sickness, division, trouble. They ultimately, at the end of the day, they want their agenda, their ideas, their concepts, their pet doctrines. They want them to prevail. They'll fight. They'll stop at no, no level to make certain that their agendas, their ideas, their causes, their concepts, their pet doctrines to prevail. They will, they will even divide a church just to get an opportunity to preach, to tell everybody about what they are most passionate about. Ironically, sadly enough, oftentimes the gospel is nowhere even on the radar screen. These people come into congregations, they cause divisions, these people enter into Bible studies, and people end up starting to fight and argue over the Bible study. You maybe walked in there, you've been in a church that, like that before, maybe you've been there before, you walk in, you're like, I just want Jesus. All of a sudden, you see two people fighting over when the rapture is going to happen. And everything now shifts from talking about Jesus as to when and how the whole end time scenario is all going to take place. Everything has gotten off track. Jesus isn't even on the radar screen anymore. People's lives are hurting. People are sort of in this crossfire. It's nothing but contention. It's hot. People are angry. It's a horrible place to be. It's like toxic. It's like a toxic dump. Nobody wants to be there. It's certainly not a place you want to bring a friend to. It's certainly not a place you want to regularly attend and keep going back to. These people oftentimes are not the majority. Uh, They're oftentimes in the minority, but because they've got very loud voices and they're very well networked, they've got these groups of people that they all kind of cluster with and hang out with, and they're always talking. They're always chattering. They're always like, ah, the pastor didn't talk about this this week. Or the ministry leader didn't explain it this way. 
and we feel like we need to do this or tell that or explain this particular area and kind of push forward this particular cause. The third type of people are the neutrals. These people are, in a lot of ways, they're naive. Um, they're simple in a way of trying to understand. They're confused. They become confused. They become very fearful. And in reality, these people are kind of stuck in the middle. In a lot of ways, these people make the majority. Um, this is what was going on in Galatia. The majority of the people in Galatia were neutrals. They just wanted Jesus. They wanted to be led. They wanted to be guided and directed. And when Paul went to them and shared the gospel with them, they rejoiced. Their hearts were full of joy. They loved Jesus. They were satisfied by Jesus. Jesus was what was on their lips. Jesus was what was central in their songs. Jesus was the center of everything they did. They loved Jesus. After the Judaizers came in, after these false teachers came in, everybody was talking about who was circumcised, who wasn't circumcised, uh, who started wearing the proper clothing, who wasn't wearing the proper clothing, who was rebellious, who wasn't rebellious, who was in compliance, so on and so forth. And the, the church literally became full of havoc. It, Paul's going to describe it as, you guys have been agitated. It's almost like someone tossed you guys into a washer, and then after that, a dryer, and you guys are just tumble drying all over the place. You guys are all over the place, and you guys are offending each other, you're hurting each other. It's just nothing but mass confusion. Take a look at the next slide. As we jump in, what I want to do right now is I want to basically point out, it's very important to get the gospel down. I want to first of all jump in and describe what I mean by the gospel. Here's what I mean. I'm going to describe it to you this way. That God enters into human history through Jesus. That Jesus ultimately through his substitutionary death, meaning he dies for us as a substitute on behalf of us through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension back into heaven. He's created the opportunity, the way, whereby those who trust in Jesus, who repent from their old lifestyle, from their sin, and they are brought into a new family, a new humanity. God begins sort of a new race of people, a new humanity that is not defined by how much money you have in your pocket, by what the color of your skin is, by whether you're male or female, or whatever types of other preferences or concepts or ideas or ideologies that you might have had in the past. It's not defined by that. It's not defined by how much you know how smart you are, how intelligent you are, how much theological background and training that you have. Literally what it's defined by is simple. Jesus. Jesus is the definition of the new humanity. It's one of the reasons why Paul in Ephesians says, because of Jesus, there is no Jew nor Greek, no bond nor free. So if you're a slave or you're a slave owner, and that was common back in the day, he says it doesn't matter who you are, you're all one in Christ. In modern day terms, it would be like this. Look, it doesn't matter what color of your skin is. You're one in Christ. There is not a subgroup of people. You're one in Christ. That God has created this new humanity because of what Jesus did in coming into this planet, dying, suffering, rising again from the dead. For us, we now are brought into this new humanity. So you can imagine when this gospel was, message was preached to those that lived in Galatia, that for the most part lived in a culture and a community where over 50% of all the citizens, upwards, I've even heard upwards up to 90%, 50 to 90% of all people in the first century were slaves. Think about that. Now slavery back then was radically different than what we think about it today, but they were slaves, meaning they had a slave owner that they were dependent upon. And yes, you can imagine, you're like, well maybe you know, the whole economic you know, divide wasn't as big back then. Serious? 
There have always been rich people. There's always been the high class. There's always tried to separate themselves from the low class. And it was even more so back then where this whole mentality was, look, we exist, high classes. You know, we exist, you know, or you guys exist so that you guys can take care of us. You guys exist so that you can be our slaves, so that we can live nice. And, you know, you can imagine. They were mistreated. Women were mistreated. Slaves are mistreated. And here's the message that Paul preached, is that in Christ, you're all one. So it was very common to find churches whereby you would have a slave, obviously most people were, and sometimes you'd have a slave owner who all went to the same church. You'd have a woman, and you'd have male, not separated, not segregated, not women over here, not male over here, but all in one room. Everybody's together. Everybody's united. Everybody's eating the same food from the same pot. There's not like these divisions going on. And Paul's basically saying, this is what Jesus did. He made us one family, one humanity. We're all part of that. That's really good news. It's really good news. You have been emancipated. You have been liberated would basically be the message. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a slave to even the social um, customs around you, you may have to involve yourself in them because you're still in this world, but you're not of this world. But when the church meets, when the body of Christ meets, there is no distinctions. There is not a better class of people and a lower class of people. There is not these distinctions that we see in the world. We're all one in Christ. This was liberating for the people. Very liberating for the people. And the reality is, is we need to understand the importance of this because I, for me personally, there was a time in my life where I used to actually think of the gospel. That the gospel was basically what needed to be preached to the unbeliever in order to get them in. The gospel was what needed to preach for the unbeliever to get them saved. I don't believe that anymore. Radically changed my view on that. Because today, I mean, I used to think of the gospel as being, like I said this last week, like the ABCs for the Christian. Today, I see the gospel as literally the A to Zs of the Christian. It's everything. The gospel literally lays the foundation for everything in our lives. It's not just to get non-believers in. It's to help the believers walk. It's through the gospel that we have a grid. We have a radar grid of how to even deal with people. Uh, Forgiveness. We understand forgiveness with other people through the grid of the gospel. We understand how to submit ourselves to one another through the gospel. Jesus submitted himself to the Father. We understand that through the gospel. We understand what it means to be generous from the gospel. This idea of being able to be generous, give our money away, give our goods away. Because the gospel, God's generous. He gave his only begotten son. He didn't withhold even the greatest treasure that he had. He gave it to us. It's the gospel that shows us how to be generous. Gospel shows us how to be forgiving. Gospel shows us how to deal with people, even people that are hard to deal with. You're like, well, how do I deal with people that I hate? The same way God dealt with you. I mean, the Bible says very clearly, you were once at enmity with God. What did God do? He kick you into hell? No. Jesus comes down to seek and save you. So you're like, ah, does that mean I got to try to pursue peace with all people? That's, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. You're getting the gospel now. That's what Paul says. We are brought into this whole, can you imagine, imagine living with the gospel as a lens over our lives, how it affects us. It changes the way marriages work, 
So therefore, maybe in a male home where it's male-dominated and the male's like this dude, he just controls everything, his whole throne is literally seated around this leather sofa, and that's his throne. It's, he literally rules the household from his throne, barks out orders. Everything is done through a remote control. It's all remote. Everything. He is the king of his household in a very authoritarian way. Well, what the gospel does is it knocks the dude off the throne, replaces him with Jesus, and says, you know what, there is an order here. I am the leader of the household, but you know what? The leaders serve just like my leader served. You get that? The gospel affects and changes everything about our lives. Even the way that you parent. Like, I'm totally going into sidetrack mode right now, but I'll throw this one last example out. Even for parents, parents with kids that are just wayward. I mean, parents can be like, you know what, I don't know how to deal with this. It's not my problem that the kid's doing all this lame stuff, that the kid's walking in sin, pursuing a life of sin. I told them, I threw the law down, they broke the law, they can live in hell, all I care, because I threw the law down. It's like gospel applied to that says God pursues the brokenhearted kid, the kid that runs away, God chases after him. That's what a good father who is understanding the gospel working out does. He pursues his children, pursues them in love, not pursues them just to sort of yoke a law around their neck, but pursues them to affect to change in their hearts, to love them. See what I'm saying? The gospel is the A to Z of everything. That's why Paul says, if we get the gospel wrong, we lose. We lose. One last thing you guys need to know before I jump on is um, you need to be aware of this as well because if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you realize maybe there's churches you've been to, Bible studies you've been to, groups you've been to, communities of Christians you've been to, where the emphasis really isn't Jesus. The emphasis is, you know, if you meet with us and you pray with us every morning super early, then you're good. Then God will bless us. You know, if you read your Bible as passionately it as eagerly as we do it then god is obligated to bless you you know if as a christian you know of course we, we believe in jesus but if you speak in tongues then god will bless you and if you don't speak in tongues then maybe you don't have the full anointing of god in other words you are sort of the subclass of christian this these are the modern day equivalents you understand what i'm saying and what it does is it creates a subpar classification of christians we even, I mean, there, there's even whole segments of Christianity that are like, you know, we're the spirit-filled people. And we're not. Cuss word just came to my mind, but I won't say it. It is horrible. It is not how God intends for us to understand these things. To somehow create new classifications of saying, spirit-filled Christians, unspirit-filled Christians. That's what the Bible teaches. Everybody who's in Christ has the Spirit. Everybody who's in Christ has been accepted in, in the beloved in Jesus Christ. It's, we do the same thing. We try to yoke on these extra burdens, extra things. And the way that it was being done in the Galatians days, they were basically saying, great, it's great to love Jesus, great to be in Jesus, but have you been circumcised? Because you really need to be circumcised. That's what will make the deal perfect. If you change the way, you clo- the way they're dressed, that's what will make you extra Christian. So it's Jesus plus 
all these other things. And we do the same thing in our own modern day culture. And what I'm trying to say is when we do this, it modifies, it changes the gospel to the point where even Paul says, what we end up really having is not a gospel at all. Let me give you one other example. Matthew chapter 22 basically describes this story. Jesus gives this parable of a father, a king, who actually throws a big party. And he throws this party and basically he sends out his servants. He says, go gather those who live in the kingdom, bring them in. The people come in, or actually they, when they're summoned, they don't come in. They basically deny the call to come. And they're like, we don't want to go. And it says that the, that the king is very angry. So then he says to the servants, says, okay, go to the highways, the byways, go to the people that are living underneath the bridge or living out and, uh, you know, overpasses. They're the people that are not part of society. Society's kind of pushed them out to the outcast areas. Nobody wants to hang out with them, talk to them. They smell. They dress really bad. These are the type of people, the, the father then says, bring them in. And then I think it's like verse 10 of Matthew chapter 22. It says, and the good and the bad came. This is absolutely astounding because almost every other religious system basically says this, the good people are the ones that receive the blessing. The ones who pray with us with as much diligence are the ones that receive the blessing. The ones who study the Bible with as much diligence as we study the Bible are the ones that receive the blessing. The ones that do these things, whatever they are, whatever they attach onto the gospel, they do these extra things are the ones that are in, the ones that are of the higher class, higher race, higher blessing, higher benefit, higher life. These are the ones that receive it all. In that little parable, he says, both good and bad. This is astounding. What other religion do you know of that actually says, it's not based upon how good you are that gets you into the wedding feast. It's whether or not you have a robe. Because in the rest of the story, it says, the only people that were allowed in, the ones that were given a robe, everyone was offered a robe. Some received it, others rejected it. It's the people that were in the room, some of them really bad, nasty people. They still probably smelled, even though they had this nice robe on. But they were let in. They were brought in. Why? Solely because of the goodness of the king. That's the point of the story. That's what Christianity is about. It's the only thing out there that basically says, it's not, the good news is not based upon your performance if you think God will receive you and accept you and bless you even more because of what you do for God, then you've already begun to sort of pervert this concept that you in Christ alone, plus nothing, are already accepted in Christ, in God. You're seen as a privileged human being. That God has brought you and he's saved you. He's protected you. He's washed you. You are cleansed. Not because of what you've done. And that's what Paul is basically fighting for. I'm going to talk real quick about, um, I think about these people that are, and I call them a warden. Like a warden. They're, they're people that, they're sticklers for certain things. Um, and we've all met these people. I'll give you an example. Someone that comes to my mind would be like, say, a, a, a movie warden. He's a person that's really into movies. He loves movies. Watches movies all the time. And uh, he's the type of person that if you ever go to a movie with them and you sit down with them, um, you're not allowed to talk. The moment you open your mouth and say something, he's like, stop, stop, stop. You know, you're like, dude, it's like the beginning of the show. Like, it's the, the lion has not even roared yet. Like, you're telling me to quiet. Like, all of a sudden, like, another minute into, you're like, you know, I gotta go get some Mike and Ikes. You know, they're like, nope, you can't miss anything. All right, 10 minutes into the movie, you're like kind of dozing off a little bit. Your head kind of 
dips a little bit, and the guy nudges you like, what are you doing? He's the type of person that will literally forego his own enjoyment, his own experience of the movie, just to make sure that you get the full experience. You get that? There's also food wardens. I think of food wardens. These are people that are all into cooking. They love to cook. Cooking is like their world. They want to make sure that the food is right. They think about the table. They want to make sure everything looks good, candlelights. Everything's, the whole ambiance is set. Everything's just perfect. And so you sit down, you're getting ready to eat. And what are they doing? They're not sitting down necessarily eating with you. They're still walking around. You're like, why don't you come and sit down? They're like, nah, I got to, you know, do this. I got to, you know, still make up something else. Got to make dessert next. And they can't sit down. They can't enjoy it because they're there to serve, to make sure that you get the full-orbed experience of the food. Now, in reality, Paul was a gospel warden. Paul was this type of guy that was like, I want to make sure at all costs, even to me, that you guys get the gospel. I'll forego even my own temporary enjoyment. I'll forego even life's good pleasures, whether it be having a wife, whether it be having, you know, a nice security, nice little house on the Mediterranean. Paul's like, I'll, I'll forego it all just to make certain that you guys get the gospel and not have false concepts, false concepts in your mind that misleads you, that misdirects you, misguides you to alternatives. As we jump in, as we kind of wrap this up, what I want to do right now is I want to look at basically four things that Paul points out that I think are really essential in the rest of this passage here that he wants us to understand why the gospel is so essential, why he's really hammering this whole thing. And what he's going to do is going to basically point out four different things, four different examples. And uh, we'll look at this. And so God initiates, God says something, God does something. And then ultimately we see the religious leaders have their own thing. So what ends up happening, we see first of all that God... Uh, has his own little action here. So take a look at the next slide. God involves himself. The first thing we see is what we saw last week. God gave himself for our sins. We saw that last week. Second thing, we saw that God delivered us from this present evil age. Is this an evil age? Is this an evil world? It's really bad. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why you guys have locks on your doors at house, at your house, why you have locks on your car, you buy alarms. This is San Luis Obispo. I don't know how many cars get robbed here. But I mean, people are still even in their alarms, like, boop, boop, boop. You know, it's like, people are really into that stuff because we don't trust anybody. You know, women carry around mace in their purse. They're even skeptical, maybe even at church. Like, I don't even trust this shady dude next to me at church. It's like, I understand. I understand what it's like. We just, uh, we live in a world that's evil. Everything's evil. You're like, the pastor sounds pessimistic. I am, all right? I'm not very hopeful of things getting much better in this world apart from God's grace. I'm really not. We've been living here for thousands of years now. We've not really done much better, all right? We've gotten along a little bit further advanced in technology, which basically means we've gotten way better at getting porn more accessible to everybody, all right? We've not really gotten much better as a community, as a culture, as a humanity. The point that I would make is that part of the salvation, God says, I've delivered you from this present evil age. Delivered you. The third thing is he says he calls us by the grace of Christ, the idea by which God calls us, the Greek word is kaleo, which basically we get the English word call, but the word call in the English is a little bit different than the Greek word kaleo that's used here to define God's action. Let me try to do the best I can to explain it. If you're a parent, you have kids, you know that if your kid is running away, let's say your kid's two years old, and you're calling your kid, you're like, hey, it's time for dinner. You're like, come to dinner. Uh, you know that you might end up calling your kid three or four times before they end up not coming again. Right? Fifth time, you're like, come on, 
And you raise your voice a little bit more. You're like, you got to come. And finally, you kind of make one step towards them, and they dart. They run away. So you realize in order for you to actually call them and be effective in that calling, you actually got to go do something. You got to go pick them up and bring them to the table. That's not so with God's call. God's call is unique. When God calls, when God says something, it gets done. God spoke, and the world came into being. He didn't say, I'm going to speak the world into being, and then I got to go get busy because I got a lot of stuff I got to do. It, it all was done by God's word. God spoke and it happened. Jesus on the planet. When Jesus speaks to a storm, he calls to the storm and says to the storm to stop. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell the storm to stop and then I'm going to go flip a switch and make sure it stops. He speaks and it's done. Think of Lazarus. When Jesus calls forth to Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes forth. He doesn't say, I've got to go resuscitate him now. God's word is effective. And here's what Paul's saying. If you're a Christian, the reason why you're a Christian is because God called to your heart. He called to you. He showed you how great he was. He showed you how desperately in need you were. He showed you how offensive your sin, your rebellion, your God-belittling behavior, your glory thievery was to him. He showed you that, and you actually felt conviction over that. And as a result of that, you cried out to God, said, God, I need help. I need you to forgive me. Perhaps you wept. Whatever the case was, you responded to the call of God. God's call is very powerful. That's what Paul's saying. You Galatian believers are Galatian believers because God called you. That's a huge reality. If you're a Christian, that thought, that reality should floor you to this, to this, in the sense that God has so much love that he called you to save you, to set you free, giving himself for your sins. Saved you to deliver you from this world that's evil. The second thing that we notice is the false leader's action. So these guys come into the scene, and again, kind of keeping with what we talked about earlier, these guys definitely are negatives. Their job is not to promote the gospel. It's, it's not ultimately to promote Jesus. It's to promote Jesus plus their agenda, Jesus plus their traditions, Jesus plus their cultural understanding of Judaism. Does that make sense? So these guys come in. They're, they're not denying Jesus. They're not denying the cross. They're not denying any of the basic truths of Christianity. But what they are saying is that we believe in Jesus plus these other things. So in other words, these guys are actually, at the end of the day, what's ultimate to them is not Jesus. What's ultimate for them is keeping the traditions. Do you understand that? Keeping the traditions. That was their single issue item that they were pushing forth. We see the same thing, like I mentioned today, in today's churches. People that want to promote an agenda. People that want to promote single-issue items. Some of which are just straight-up wrong. Some of which, I discover oftentimes, a lot of people have a hard time discerning between essential issues and non-essential issues. What I mean by that, some non-essential issues might be, you know, when's Jesus going to come back? Well, we, there's, there's a lot of disagreement about that. We can, we can agree to disagree on when that's going to happen. Some people disagree as to the form of church government you should have. Some people disagree as to, you know, whether or not you should have music in the church and things of that nature. There's a, whether or not gifts of the Spirit are for today. Some people believe they are, some people don't. We believe they are. But if you don't believe they are, that's okay. That's fine. You're still welcome here. We still love you. But the reality is, is that there are things that we can agree to disagree on that are non-essential issues. I actually believe that we can agree to disagree on things that, and, and keep it very amiable. But let me give you one, one extreme example. Let's say you're Amish. You're like, we, we believe... Uh, technology is straight up of the devil. You're going to have a hard time worshiping here. And so actually, you, know, you, you, you might be tempted to start a new church. That's, 
That's totally cool. But I believe that even those strong convictions can be lived out in very amiable, peaceful type ways and don't have to lead to straight up strong division. And where people are backbiting and full of hatred and anger towards each other. There's so many churches today. To be quite frank with you, if you've ever been to one of these churches and you realize like, man, why is there such sort of like this contentious spirit and everybody's upset? One of the things that you might find is it's not because everybody is promoting Jesus as the centrality of all things. What you might discover is one of the reasons for this is because somebody or the leadership of that church or the people in that church or the people that make up that church has somehow been seduced into somehow rising up a cause, an issue, something that is subordinate to the gospel and have basically said, this is most important thing in our life. And they will fight over it. They will disagree over it. They will excommunicate you if you disagree over it. If you have a different opinion over it, they will let you know how wrong you are. And Jesus is somehow lost in the middle of it all. So Paul is basically saying, these false leaders, they come. Here's what they do. The first thing they do is they trouble you. Trouble you. The Greek word is they agitate you. They create this massive confusion. The second thing, they disturb or they distort the gospel of Christ. They actually twist it and contort it. And the final thing, it says that they are actually preaching a different gospel. Look, we can agree to disagree over non-essential issues. It's not a different gospel. Like I said, if, if, if you have a particular form of church government that you're just like, I'm just absolutely convinced this is the way church government is done in the Bible. That's okay. We can totally agree to disagree and still love each other. But the reality is, is we can't be wrong on the essentials of the gospel. We can't. How are we made right with God? We can't afford to lose that. We can be wrong on a lot of different things with regard to non-essential biblical concepts when the rapture is going to happen so many different opinions upon that somebody's wrong do you understand that i mean there's at least like five to maybe eight different views out there and all i'm simply saying is somebody somebody if not even all are wrong you're like does the pastor have a conviction on this i do actually i actually do have a conviction on it but my point is that is it's one of those areas that's of non-essential essence. I ultimately, absolutely believe Jesus will return. How, when, you know what, it's it's all going to work out. It's all going to work out. It'll all take place, I know that. I'm not going to divide over it. I'm not going to argue over it. I won't separate a church over it. I won't get into beef with you over it. If you want to push me to the mat on it, I'll tap out. I'm not going to fight over it at all. I really won't. You're like, what about baptism of the Holy Spirit? You know, people speaking in tongues. I'm not going to fight with you on that. There's certain things I'm just, I will, I will walk away and not deal with it. will not fight over it. I'll give you my opinion. I'll give you why I have my opinion. But that's where it's going to go. At the end of the day, you start modifying the gospel. You start changing that. I'll go to the mat. I'll take off the gloves. I'll fight. Not in a physical way. But at the end of the day, I want to make certain that the gospel is central. So these guys were coming and they were troubling. Listen to what goes on in the very next chapter. It says this, almost done here. It says, in about uh, verse 3, it says, But even Titus, Paul's going up to Jerusalem, it says, Even Titus was um, not forced to get circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of these false brothers who were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that they might have in, that we might have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Do you get that? 
Paul's like, look, we went to Jerusalem. I had Titus with me. Titus was a Gentile, by the way. An uncircumcised Gentile. Can you imagine that? It, 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 just somehow conceive in your mind Paul bringing this full-on pagan guy. I mean, Titus. That's, that's like as, as Gentile a name as you can even get. And it's not even in the Bible. You know, it's like you don't find that name anywhere in the Old Testament. Even just by the name, the guy was a pagan guy, saved, transformed by the gospel. Paul brings him to Jerusalem. Like, Look, I put my foot down and says, I will not have Titus circumcised. But he says, but these other guys, they came in. They were spying out our freedom. They wanted to enslave us. This is the crux of it. Paul's like, these guys came in. They came in, they were negatives, and they pushed their agendas, they pushed their ideas, they pushed their causes, they pushed their concepts over us, and they tried to straightjacket us into their concepts and their ideas, and they destroyed and agitated and, and ruined everything. I have a friend, just talking to him this past week, he had a guy come into his church and preach. And he was gone for a while, and then he basically this guy came in and preached, and this, the whole week the guy had to deal with the fallout that this guy who preached a message that really was not even focused on Jesus, didn't emphasize Jesus, didn't talk about Jesus, he came in and he pushed his agenda, pushed his own concept, pushed his own opinions, and ended up bringing radical confusion to the church. Jesus wasn't emphasized, scriptures weren't even referenced or mentioned, taught out of. Unfortunately, this guy had to deal with all this fallout, dealing with people being radically agitated. This literally, exactly what happened. These people came in, tried to spy out their liberty, and tried to bring them into confusion. That's what happened. Paul's saying, this still happens today. I still talk with Christians today who go to certain churches, certain groups. They come out, and they're radically confused. They're like, look, I was told that unless I show up to all the prayer meetings, then something's not right with my, my walk with Christ. No one would ever come right out and say that, but here's what they would do. They'd call me up and be like, bro, I haven't seen you at prayer meeting the past couple weeks. Are you okay with Jesus? What's wrong? So I'm made to feel something's wrong with my walk with Christ. Maybe you've been to church. I've talked to people that have like, I've been to places before where like people have told me, you got to speak in tongues. And I haven't been able to feel like I can speak in tongues. And so I feel like a second rate, second class Christian because I haven't been able to do it. Because this is exactly what I'm talking about. Other churches you walk into, they're like, you know, look, look, you guys are all wearing t-shirts. We wear nice pressed clothes, all right? I mean, our wives actually make us look nice because God loves dockers instead of dickies. God prefers nice clothes that are pressed rather than people that look like slobs because, you know, God loves nice dressed people more than, you know, you guys. That's kind of the mentality. People walk away. They're like, oh, I didn't know God actually cared about the type of hat we wear, the type of clothing we wear, or how we wear them. The point that I'm trying to make is this, is Paul's like, look, there are people that will come in and they will try to agitate, aggravate, and destroy the gospel. The third thing that Paul does is he says, he wants to correct them. Paul basically says this, take a look at the verse, if we or an angel from heaven should come and preach to you a gospel that's contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. Uh, some of your translations might say anathema. Um, long time ago, like back in the 70s, uh, during the Jesus movement, all these Christians were like going around saying maranatha. It's like a real popular word, like Jesus coming. Again, Maranatha. Anathema is actually uh, derived, a derivative from that particular word, Maranatha. And it basically means the opposite of Maranatha. In other words, as we want to see Christ come, in the same way Paul is like, these people that preach this false gospel, I want them to go as far away from Christ as they can. They're so messed up. That's how serious this issue is. But Paul says, look, even if we, even if I come and I preach you a different gospel, can you get this? I mean, here's what Paul's saying. is, like, look, even if I go away and if I come back to you guys, I'm like, look, tch, tch, 
I want to make some edits in the message I preach to you guys. Jesus really isn't God. And he really isn't the ultimate way to God. I mean, there are several different other ways. Paul's saying, should you kick me out of the church? You should kick me out of the church. If I, as your pastor, I started the church 16 plus years ago in my house. We've seen it grow. We've seen God do amazing things in this church. Send people out. We've planted churches. All sorts of great things happen. If I come back next week and I'm like, look, I want to make some edits, changes. Jesus really isn't the only way to God. God actually prefers for you to wear, you know, these clothes. And you got to wear Converse shoes. you got to buzz your head. That's what Jesus loves. I mean, if you're like combing your hair and you're a guy and you're like putting hair product in your hair, it's probably because you're a sinner and you need to repent. So you just need to do this. Because this is, this, is this is the haircut that God actually loves. And the reality is, should you fire me? Yeah, you should fire me. You should fire me. The answer to that is yes. Because it's replacing Jesus with another set of rules, cultures, traditions, to replace what Jesus already did for us on the cross. Paul says, even if an angel comes, don't believe him. Then basically goes on to say, for I am not now seeking to find approval of men, or am I not seeking to find approval of men or God? He says, I'm not trying to please you or man. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul's like, look, at the end of the day, my goal, my job, my desire is to please God. And that means sometimes I, I have to speak harsh words to you guys because you guys are in danger of falling away. So we see Paul's action, which is the positive. We see the religious leaders, which is the negative. And ultimately and finally, we see the church's reaction, which is they're the neutrals. And it says in verse 6 that these guys are quickly deserting him. They're quickly turning away to a different gospel. Take a look at verse 6. I finish with this. It says this. I'm going to the worship team come on up and wrap it up. He says this, I'm astonished that you are quickly deserting him. Here's Paul's point. When you turn away from the gospel, you're not just turning away from a pastor's sermon. You're not just turning away from a set of standards. You're not just turning away from dogma. Paul personalizes this. He says you're actually turning away from him from God. But he elaborated on that earlier because we saw who is God? How great is God? God redeemed us, saved us from this evil world. God gave his son to die in our place for our sins. God who called you out of the grave to arise and whose calling is actually effective and effectual. That's the God, the personal God that we are actually walking away from. At the end of the day, I want to just simply say this. Christianity is not about these sets of standards and rules and cultural concepts that we straitjacket ourselves into. Christians that want to moralize Christianity. Preachers that want to somehow make Christianity and say Christianity. A Christian is someone who doesn't cuss anymore. They don't drink alcohol anymore. They dress a certain way. They buy big fat Bibles. They purchase a Thomas Kincaid painting. They do certain things and don't do other certain things. That's what a Christian is. This moralization of the gospel is really not a gospel after all. It's a destruction of the gospel. Christianity is the only thing by which God says, whether you're evil or good or you think you're good, you're all accepted in the same playing field. Through Jesus. And Paul says, you modify Jesus, 
You change them one bit, you've lost it. You've lost the gospel. You've lost the essence of it. You've lost the power of it. This is why it's so important, guys. We want to be a church that's about Jesus. We really do. That means we all got to work together for this. We got to keep Jesus central. It means that pet doctrines we have, particular ideas that are not necessarily essential issues, yeah, have opinions, have convictions, but don't ever lose sight of the gospel. Don't ever lose sight of how big Jesus is because everything in our life is affected by the gospel. Everything. We're going to worship, we're going to respond, we're going to sing. If you're a parent here and you've got kids, make sure they pick up your kids. You can bring them back in here and worship if you want, but uh, it's, it's really important just to kind of relieve the people that are back there. Uh, as I guarantee right now, they're kind of ready to be relieved, so think about that. Um, it's a great way to let the gospel live through you, to love them, to relieve them. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to respond. We're going to partake of communion. The communion really, as we partake of that, is the gospel in narrative form. We eat the bread. We drink the cup. We remember what Jesus did for us. It's a picture of what the gospel is, that Jesus died for us. His body was broken so that ours wouldn't be. Jesus' life was poured out so ours doesn't have to be. And now, because in Christ, we're all one. We're all dipping out of the same cup. We're all eating, theoretically, the same bread. It's all one big loaf. We're all one in Christ. There is no better person. There's no lesser person. There's no more spiritual person. There's no lesser spiritual person. We're all one in Christ. That humbles us. That ought to humble us to the point of realizing that Jesus is to be made much of. Not us. Not our pet doctrines, but Jesus. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's confess sin to Jesus. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you feel a sense of conviction maybe in your heart like you've never felt before, that's God calling you. It's God calling you. It's God saying, I want to help you. I want to set you free. I want to deliver you from these things that are killing you. I want to set you free. I want to give you life. That's God's call. The way you respond is confess your sin to Jesus. Trust in him. Give your life to him. Devote yourself to him. Rejoice in him. That's the essence of Christianity. Let's pray. Let's let the gospel work its way in our minds. That means as we worship, like Jesus said, if you come and bring your gift on the altar and you realize you got an offense against a brother, the gospel does, it says, i got to go make this right. If I'm going to go hang out with a reconciling God and I've got unreconciled relationships in my life, I've got to go deal with those. That's what the gospel does. works through those things. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Let the gospel work its way through our, in our lives. We want to keep it central. Help us, we pray. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to keep this happening in our lives. Right now, God, as we worship you, pray that our hearts and our minds would just be unhindered, that we would remember that, Jesus, you are here in this place. You're not up there. You're not out there. You're not beyond there. You are here now. Where your people are, so you are. What an amazing reality that we get to worship a God that's not distant, but here. It's not dead, but is alive. So we bring to you our worship, our praise, our love, our sin. We confess it to you. We lay it at your feet.